March episode 21. Welcome one. 22. Wow. 22 now. 22 now. 22, 22. episodes. Wow. It's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, we're taking a little break from the political side of things this week. Uh, I was just reading through some global news articles and uh, came across one uh, that was just kind of describing uh, what you were doing out uh, in the badlands there. Uh, we have uh, Mark Powers joining us. Uh, Mike. Archaeologist. Mike? Oh, Mike? Mark. 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 Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. My bad. Funny story. Oh, sorry. <laughs> always call me Mike. Yeah. <laughs> Messed it up already. Oh, shit. No, uh, yeah, and it's just been, uh, it's been, uh, you know, kind of just political lately and I just wanted to take a little break and maybe uh, bring in some dinosaurs. Everybody likes yeah. dinosaurs and uh yeah just uh just kind of if you want to take a minute to just explain what the article is going on about maybe some of the struggles you had uh outside of drum heller there and uh just kind of what's been going on welcome aboard by the oh, way <laughs> yeah no thank, thank you very much for having me uh, yeah. it's always a delight to be invited to the gooch um, so happy to happy to be here um yeah so basically what happened was it started in 2015 just a student-led research project um looking at the badlands between drum heller and tolman bridge kind of that stretch uh, along the Red Deer River Valley. And over the years, we kind of moved more towards Morin Bridge area. And in 2017, we actually found a juvenile hadrosaur or duckbill dinosaur that uh, was weathering out of the hill. So we got a lot of the skull bits initially. And then it was in 2018 when we went back and we really took the hill back to explore if there was more of the specimen. We realized that we had a fully articulated specimen that was only missing the tail and a little bit of the pelvis. Okay. And other than that, everything else seemed to be there. Wow. Yeah. And what was an interesting challenge about it is that most times when you find dinosaurs in a skeleton of a dinosaur, it's usually on its side. And that's because there's usually a lot of transport. The animal gets moved and then it sort of ends up resting on its side as it decays and whatnot. And some of that might be to do due to um, the organs in the body might be asymmetrical. So you might be tip if you're in yeah, the water. OK. Yeah. Whereas uh, this animal seems to have died in place. So it's actually upright. It's it's crouched down and it seems to have been stuck in the spot that it was at and then was buried after that fact so really make, yeah and it's it's very uncommon we don't usually find them like that especially in uh fluvially or water induced environments yeah you do find that sort of stuff in mongolia where things are buried by blowing sand so they kind of oh, get buried yeah. rapidly they're just hunkered down and then they get buried but usually in uh north america more broadly but alberta especially we usually find things on their side because of that and just influence. out of curiosity, how how old roughly would that dinosaur be? Yeah, well, so the bones anyway. Yeah, the bones. Uh, in terms <laughs> the dinosaur's of, long gone. <laughs> yeah, in terms of when it was alive, it or sorry, yeah, uh, the time that it was alive would have been about seventy-one million years ago. Wow. wow. So it's roughly equivalent to the the Edmontosaurus bone bed we have here in Edmonton, actually. So um, it's about the same time, maybe a little bit older than that. Um, yeah. Crazy! It's so cool to to think that that's something that you can kind of even just happen upon. Like uh, how how rare is it to find a specimen when you go out there with with these kinds of uh, I mean obviously that's the goal whenever yeah. you're going out yeah. there but to see something weathering out of a hill that's that's got to be relatively uncommon I got to imagine yeah so a lot of times when we go prospecting it is just that we're just feet on the ground walking around looking for specimens and a lot of times we'll find washouts so stuff that's already weathered out of the hill and now it's kind of a little bit downhill and it's just on the surface or a little bit buried yeah that's the typical stuff you find when you go out walking around and a lot of people will commonly come across those things what we look for is definitely a bone that's starting to weather out of the hill and it's not at that complete stage yet because that usually means there's more in the hill okay and uh it becomes exceedingly difficult each year just because there's constant searching for these specimens and stuff like that so where we are waiting for erosion to do its work and expose more skeletons 
Because if we were to go back into the early 1900s and go down the Red River Valley, we would have found troves of skeletons that had yet to be discovered. And it shows when you go to places like the Museum of Natural History in New York, uh, they have a lot of skeletons from the Red Deer River of Alberta because they did a, a scour trip down the Red Deer River and they mm. found and collected a lot of the skeletons. So it's both great to look at all those skeletons and sad because it's all that Alberta history, but it's in you know in the York. States or it's in England and it's just all over the world. Um, yeah. But it really is what's developed our idea in a lot of ways of what Cretaceous dinosaurs look like. Oops, Cretaceous dinosaurs <laughs> look good. like. Um, just because a lot of the famous ones come from here, right here in Alberta. So a lot of the iconic crested hadrosaurs and the ceratopsians with really interesting frills and spikes and stuff are usually found right about here. So that's so cool. Yeah. But with the with the duck build one in particular, about how big is what was the specimen itself? I know it was missing yeah. the pelvis and tail, but like, how big was the one you found, and how big would it have been when it was you know fully living? Yes, yeah, so that's actually where it's really interesting. Um, because what happens is in bone beds, so let's start with bone beds. We find a lot of individuals, but they're disarticulated. So you'll find all the different bones jumbled around. And because of bone beds, we actually have a lot of information about Edmontosaurus, which this specimen we believe is. And oh, cool. Edmontosaurus gets really big. So the full size Edmontosaurus rivals the size and weight of a T-Rex. So it's one of the biggest hadrosaurs that we know of too. And so this individual is only about horse sized. So if you can imagine... A T-Rex, something bigger than an elephant by a pretty wide margin. And then sure. you got a horse-sized individual. What's interesting about this size category for Edmontosaurus is that in all the bone beds we have, this size range is actually the least common. Oh. So for some reason, the hadrosaurs either just always survive this stage and they don't usually preserve or they're separate from the herds. And that's why in bone beds, we don't even find this size of individual that, that frequently. So there is this hypothesis that they may have left the herd at this age range to go into more dense foliage maybe a little bit away from the coast um, just to avoid competition with the adults and yeah. split up that sort of niche and role in the ecosystem so we're not too sure yet but it is interesting for that aspect of its size and age and we really want to study it for those reasons to get a better understanding of how edmontosaurus grew and what we can expect for those changes as it grows in its morphology and shape so I'm I'm so curious now. Like, do we know like the limitations of like I'm I just I genuinely I'm so ignorant on a lot of the stuff that you study and it's so fascinating. So I'm just curious. Like, do we do we know what the lifespan would have been on on an animal like that to know like where along its its life it might have been at, at this size? Well, it's interesting you ask that because a lot. And I would say probably the past 10, 15 years, that's been a really prominent place of study. Is okay. We've put a lot of efforts into understanding how they grow and at what age they get to. So not just for Edmontosaurus, but other hadrosaurs and Tyrannosaurus. We have a pretty good understanding of their lifespan, at least as far as what's been preserved so far. Okay. And as an example, a T-Rex and its close relatives probably got to about 28, 30 years old before okay. they were reaching the end of their life. And in terms of hadrosaurs and ceratopsids, they grew quite rapidly, actually. So within the first six to eight years, they would have reached their full size or close to it. Wow. And That's they, a lot of growth for something is, from it's, a yeah. horse to like like a building. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's huge. <laughs> it's insane. And that's uh, so the individual we're looking at is probably only about three or four, but it's already horse sized. 
Yeah. So in those first few years, it's it's gotten quite large, but it's still got a lo- it had a long way to go, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> because it's fossilized. It didn't yeah. make it. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so we expect Edmontosaurus, I think, gets up into the 20s as well. That's like the age range we, we suspect for Edmontosaurus. Interesting. Um, the oldest known dinosaurs, I believe, are the sauropods, which we have some estimates going up into the 40s, probably beyond. So. Really? I oh, would have wow. expected so much more because I don't know the, the connection or correlation, but when we see like uh, some some reptiles living into the, mm-hmm. the three digits and you're getting into the hundreds, I mean, they're often, they're smaller nowadays. Yeah. But, and I'm, and I'm sure the resource competition is always going to change that as well. But yeah, I just, I thought for sure that for the size that they get to that they would have significantly longer lifespans. That's where there was a, a big debate for a long time in dinosaur uh, research history and we thought of them initially as these big reptiles so they would grow really slowly they'd be kind of lumbering giants and they'd have to be relatively low activity and it was in 1969 i believe was when the description of a raptor dinosaur deinonychus came out and it changed the way we perceived dinosaurs because this was clearly a dinosaur but it also was something that was very active and very agile and so it changed that perspective and as we did more work by looking in the bones themselves so the histology to look at a how they grow but also what kind of growth they have yeah we found that they actually grow sort of as intermediate between modern birds and mammals and then reptiles so they did have this sort of slow growth after they reached sort of that asymptote or that kind of peak growth yeah that is more reminiscent of a reptile but during those growth periods they they experienced a rapid sort of boom Um, And there's two types of growth. Some of them grow rapidly to get to adult size very quickly, and others kind of go through a lag in their juvenile state and then go through a rapid teenage sort of growth into the adult farm. And that's kind of more typical of what we're seeing in the tyrannosaurs, whereas in the hadrosaurs and ceratopsians, we're seeing that rapid early growth and then just kind of stagnant, ongoing. So raptors and T-Rex... Feathers or no feathers? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> this a is good, a debate. Yeah. I, 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 I'll get asked by like everybody. It's like, well, do you think they had feathers? And yeah. I was just at the uh, dinosaur exhibit uh, at the Space and Science Center here in Edmonton. I was there a couple uh, weeks ago too. Yeah, they had the, yeah. the dinosaurs all yeah. set up, and uh, yeah, I was walking through, and they had like a, I don't know, the teenage T Rex and had mm-hmm. feathers, and uh, well, at least that, that's how I remember. But it looked like they put them yeah. on. Kind of haphazardly. It looked like they had the, the animatronics <laughs> done ahead of time. And yeah. then they were like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. <laughs> Things have changed. And they yeah. put them on. Like, yeah. uh, it was like the old Chuck E. Cheese animatronics. They're like, oh, yeah. we've already got it built. Oh, no, we got to scrap that. We've got to change <laughs> yeah. some stuff. Get the hot glow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so raptors definitely had feathers. And probably all raptor dinosaurs had feathers to some yeah. extent. Um, cool. So tyrannosaurs are interesting because uh, if you look at Tyrannosauridae, the family... There's no direct evidence of feathers within the family. Okay. But if you go to sort of their more distant relatives, so a little bit out into the super family, as we call it, the Tyrannosauroidea, suddenly all their other relatives have feathers. Okay. So Uh it's this kind of idea that they definitely ancestrally had feathers, but it does seem in the Tyrannosaurid, so when the derived Tyrannosaurus like T-Rex, Albertosaurus, things like that, they seem to have lost feathers. and. A reason for that may be uh, gigantothermy, so essentially because they got so big in those more derived forms, feathers may have actually been too good at insulating and caused them to overheat or could have caused mm-hmm. physiological problems, essentially. Mm. So they might have lost those feathers, but we keep kind of holding on to that they should have feathers because ancestrally they had feathers. And so the idea now is that the juveniles probably had a down-type coating that they might have lost as they got bigger. So when they were first born, they might have kind of been covered by these light feather 
patterns and maybe looked a little bit like an ostrich chick, if you can yeah. sort of imagine <laughs> that. Yeah. yeah. And then over time, as they got bigger, they would have lost these feathers. But you'll still see reconstructions where they retain feathers on like the top of their head or any area where we haven't found skin impressions so far. So it's like okay. maybe they still had feathers here because we don't have skin huh. impressions. But so far, the direct evidence is that Tyrannosaurs at the end of their sort of family's lineage didn't seem to have feathers, at least in the areas we know about. No kidding. Yeah. yeah. What's your thoughts on this? Like uh, raptors somewhat evolved into chickens. And then humans, <laughs> very loosely, we, I'd say. I, yeah, 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 very, very, loose very loosely. Yeah. But then, you know, us humans, we turn chickens into dinosaur chicken nuggets. I do like that analogy. I think that That's is very <laughs> it's serendipitous to some extent. Yeah. As someone but, who loved dinosaur chicken, yeah, as a kid and still oh, yeah. do. I mean, I wouldn't eat that uh, right now if I could. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I like that. I like the idea that it's kind of circular. Yeah. Yeah. No. I was just uh, I saw a, a, I saw a picture of that the other night. I yeah. think our algorithms just kind of know. Started looking at more dinosaur stuff, and I saw this little picture. It was like picture of raptors and an arrow to chickens, and then an arrow of chickens to dinosaur chicken nuggets. So I was like, just just one big circle. Yeah. That's just one big circle. Just just one big circle. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so like I've, I've always kind of wondered like when when you're excavating these, uh, you, you know, you can't always choose where the, these these remains are, mm -hmm. and uh, you know a lot of these areas are usually by water or they're quite remote. Um, I, I imagine there's some there's some cowboy shit that kind of goes on to get these. Uh, you know, you gotta be <laughs> delicate, but like yeah. I, I just kind of want to hear a story. I'm sure there's one where like some janky stuff was going oh, down. Oh yeah, well I definitely have. Some for that. All right. We, we, we <laughs> like to try to progress in a more controlled fashion because sure enough, in the, the olden days, it was, you know, horseback. They'd yeah. be bringing things in on a wagon. They'd haul things out on a wagon or they'd take things to a boat because they didn't really have the, the infrastructure we obviously have today uh, or flying crafts, which also make things a little bit easier. But uh, so in the case of my own personal involvement, it's kind of like it. it's the hard work that you just need to do, mm -hmm. I suppose. And if you have the option, you may as well just do it. And so I'm quite used to hauling giant jackets out just with manpower. Um, and we were really lucky because with the University of Alberta, we do field work in Dinosaur Park usually every year. And a couple of these years, the, the McGill crew, so there's a field school course for the McGill students to come out and join us in Dinosaur Park. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so they bring about like 20 kids. None of them look like they're particularly... <laughs> Uh, prepared or ready to do the field work. So we called them the McGillians and then they'd call us the Burly Boys because we'd all look like we were rough and tough from our weeks in the field work yeah. prior to them arriving. <laughs> and so their their supervisor, Hans Larson, he's very much like, if we can do it, let's just do it. And I definitely share that sentiment. So if you have the ability to do it, you may as well just do it. And so we'd have this jacket that was, I think, about 1,200, 1,300 pounds. And we needed to get it out of the Badlands and we're close to prairie level. So his idea was, let's just tie ropes to it and let's all just drag it out. You know, let's put all these McGillians to good use. Let's just throw 20 bodies at it and we'll just get it up over the hill. And sure enough, that's what sure. we did. And we did this twice, actually. So there was two jackets of similar weight and essentially we just strapped ropes to the jacket a bunch of people just grabbed hold. So why, why do you call out. them jackets? Is it because you wrap them in uh, yeah, it's, like a... Yeah, it's kind of like a... Paper mache a nice kind of... It's a warm term. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Good, good. So we call it a field jacket. And essentially yeah. it's just a, an enclosure to keep the fossil and the rocks together. Because when gotcha. we're in the field, we don't want to do like any fine prep. So we really just want to expose the borders of the rock. Yeah. And then what we do is we create a pedestal. So we, we get a lot of extra... Sorry, borders of the fossil. And then we get a lot of extra rock below it gotcha and so we jacket the whole thing and then undercut it and flip it over and then we'll 
finish the jacket on the other side. Oh, right yeah. on. And the jacket's oh. just like paper mache kind of? It's like... kind of the same principle. It's a burlap and plaster. So okay, we use okay. plaster of Paris and we set it in burlap straps, essentially. And that uh, creates a nice sort of almost glass-like, but glass concrete, if that makes sense, I guess. Yeah. So it's hard like concrete, but kind of has a glass sort of feel to it. That's so cool. Okay. Yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. It's yeah. kind of also therapeutic when you're getting your hands in the oh, plaster. Yeah, that, would, just, that would be so nice. Yeah, shaping the bone. It's nice <laughs> on a hot day too. So, yeah. and how For long? Sure. How long? Once you get the specimen back, like, is how? how I'm sure it's got to be an incredibly delicate procedure to mm. fully expose any specimen. How? How many man hours goes into that kind of yeah, that kind of work? It's got yeah. Tough to say. So my experience is on smaller specimens for preparation. So yeah. I, I did work at the Tyrol for two summers uh, do, in their prep lab. So I was preparing fossils. And some of the jackets I got were maybe maybe close to a meter in length, but like half a meter in depth. Okay. And it would take probably about a month to a month and a half of me working on wow. that jacket to fully prepare everything and get them museum ready, you might say. So then wow. they go into collections where researchers can look at them. And that's just something like that. So then when you take a skeleton or something that's quite large, and you think about all the different jackets or just really big jackets that have to kind of be prepared out systematically to keep things in context and record the information. It can take a few years even just for yeah. a single skeleton. Um, oh yeah, I was thinking of like the the yeah. I've seen uh, I think it was a the triceratops but yeah i i've uh went back when they had the dinosaur exhibit in in bc way back when when i was younger i remember seeing a whole bunch of different fossils like full-size ones and now, now i'm just thinking that must have been several several years yeah. of work and probably more than that because if you think about just even the excavation side of it the searching for it the shipping of it transportation mm. yeah it's crazy to think about how much and then putting it all back together again once it's yep. been itemized and that's yeah it's quite it's quite crazy and then uh, uh so for for you in particular when you're going on these digs you typically like because you have student volunteers like mm-hmm. they're within your class right yeah um have you had any of the students make any cool findings over the years uh yeah actually quite a bit so i guess i'll describe the the, the way it works as a student we Please, can't yeah yeah as a student <clears throat> we can't necessarily initiate and start uh, a dig on our own we do have to have supervisor support. So my former supervisor, Phil Curry, which is famous for his paleontological work across not just Alberta, but the world. Um, so he always signs off on my permits and signs off on our our sort of activities plan, our field activities plan that we have to do with the university. So once that's all said and done, I then take a supervisory role and I lead the field expedition. And I, I co-led it uh, last year and this year with Annie McIntosh, a PhD student in Phil's lab. And so we essentially lead this and we organize volunteers and we prioritize students, of course, because it's going to be most important for them to get this experience and get it under their belt. And so once we go out there, we might cycle through volunteers and students, depending what their schedule is over a two to three week period. And uh, then we go out and if we have a quarry, we do work there, but we like to sort of cycle around too, so that some days you'll work on the quarry that we're actively uh, working on at that time. And then other days you'll go out prospecting. So looking for new finds. And that's what kind of keeps us working each year is if we find more things that are worth going back for and luckily this year we did and here's a perfect example of a student finding something really (laughs) exciting um it was a a guy henry sharp and myself and henry is a paleo artist so he actually draws the reconstructions you might see and stuff like that and he recently did a big commission for the calgary zoo 
Oh, so okay. all the dinosaur plaques and their reconstructions oh, really? on it. He did all of them. No kidding. For, I, for... I was just there. Oh, so perfect. yeah, yeah they, they have the little walkthrough dinosaur yep. part. And so he did that and he's a student at the University of Alberta and he reached out very early on to ask if he could volunteer. And luckily we could accommodate one or two student volunteers this year because yeah. of COVID restrictions. And so he came out and it was a day that he and I were prospecting. So we were just out kind of going up the hills, down the hills, next hill over, keep going. And we didn't have like a tremendous amount of luck in the morning. We found a few things worth collecting. So it wasn't total waste or anything of that sort. And then there's the near the end of the day and we're climbing up a hill and we kind of reach a sandstone. We look around, not too much. And then we look at each other. We're like, okay, one more, one more sandstone. Let's go up to the next sandstone. We go up to the next sandstone, cool topography and all that. A few bone scraps here and there. We're like, okay, nothing really. And then one more sandstone. I think we can do one more sandstone. We went up to the next one and on our way up, I noticed um, just this, big bone sticking right out of the hill and it's been weathering for a few years and you can tell and it was probably uh we think it's an ischium so a pelvic bone from a hadrosaur so it looks like the right morphology for it but while we were up there we sort of scoured the layer because if there's bone in one spot along a layer of rock you can try and look and see if maybe it's in other spots maybe you have a bone bed or a skeleton Mm -hmm. and so henry went one way and i went the other and the way that he went he found a bone just sticking out uh, of the hill and it had kind of been broken on two sides by a drainage path- passage so it weathered all in the middle and it was some kind of long bone and at okay. the time we didn't identify it to any species or anything so we thought okay well this is clearly a good site so we'll send someone back tomorrow to investigate it further and so i had to leave for a day and bring the truck back so our field truck so we could wrap up field work and when i came back they had exposed more bones at this this quarry and we still hadn't identified anything fully yet, but I sent Henry and another student back the next day to you know collect what we did find that was worth collecting. And sure enough, when he found it, he identified it as being a tyrannosaur. So it was actually a tyrannosaur femur, so the thigh bone that uh, he had found oh, wow. that day before. And so it was missing a little bit in the middle, but technically the distal or the, the attaching part, the knee part, uh, was still there, even if it was in rough shape. So I had asked him to go back after we collected the top part of the femur to just get that other bit, because at least we'd have the full femur. I thought that was important. And when he goes up, he found that it was articulated to the other part of the leg. So it was articulated to the tibia and the fibula. So Oh, wow. This he is, found almost a full, full leg just with a small channel. Yeah, and since we saw these two bones connected, we thought, well, it's odd that it would just be those bones. There's probably a foot. So he did a little artist rendition of what the foot should look like. And sure enough, the next day he goes back and they explore more, and the foot is attached but it's actually covered by some ribs, so we can't expose the entire foot. And then we started to realize that this site, aside from that one hadrosaur bone, might actually be an associated skeleton of a tyrannosaur, because the chances of having an articulated leg and a few tyrannosaur ribs nearby leads to the suspicion that there's probably more of this tyrannosaur. So that is our big find that's going to keep us coming back um, for next year, is uh, more stuff involved with that, so. That's so awesome. That's so cool that it's just like, oh, just one, one more, one more. Yeah, maybe just one more, just one more. And, uh, and it's just, it baffled me too that you guys, because you're just, you're just seeing these things. You're not using any kind of radar or anything. This is just you guys using your experience, what you know and yeah. what to look for. That's, 
That's so cool. What can you can you out of curiosity if there are any people that yeah, what are you know, the tips? Go into what, you, yeah, what, what are the what tips look to look for? <laughs> you know, like I mean, I'm, obviously I'm, the 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 disclaimer is don't don't touch it and call an expert to excavate it if you do find something. <laughs> but yeah, but, I feel like I'm legally obligated to just talk about the laws, of course, before yeah. I go into it. Sure. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trist, yeah Tristan that's, loved that's laws. He's actually <laughs> a law, he's got a law degree. This I guy, don't know so. about <laughs> any, yeah. any of this law, yeah. but yeah, I'm sure there are some protections. Didn't think we were going to get into dino law today. It's still, it's still political. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so the, the way the laws work here in Alberta, the way the laws work here in Alberta is that every fossil is considered a natural resource mm-hmm. that the government owns. So Alberta owns the fossils. So even yeah. if you find it or collect it, you don't own it. You're just curating it should you collect it. And the rules about collecting is that you have to be able to pick it up. It can't be in the ground at all. So even if you use your thumb to pry something out of the ground, that's technically excavation, hmm. which you can't do without a permit. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So if you do find things that are on the ground and loose that are not in a provincial or national park, so they have to be on private or um, public access land that's not uh, any government regulated land like a like a provincial park or anything, okay. then you can take it home if you'd like and curate it. So you can keep it in your Alberta home. You can't take it out of Alberta and you can have it to show your friends and anything that come over. But that's about as far as you can go with it. You can't sell it or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so that's that's essentially the collection law for the public. Yeah. If you do have a permit, then you are you want landowner permission if you are going on private land, first and foremost, private or um, a permit holding paleontologist. And then you go and you can basically, you know, pick things out of the ground as you see fit. Like if you need to figure out what it is, you can go and explore those things a bit more. And then you can do active excavations as well. And usually permits have a time frame within a year that they're active. So you can only be doing that for that time frame. So as an example, our permit, because of COVID, we knew we had a limited window. So it ends at the end of August. So I could still go out now and collect a few things if I found anything worthwhile. But after that, I, I have no legal right or ability to do so yeah fair enough yeah that's yeah. for for anybody wondering that's subsurface uh uh rights it, property holders don't own subsurface rights mm. in most of canada that would be why you can't you know just start uh, setting up an oil rig on your backyard yeah, uh you don't own the rights to everything under it's also why you're liable if you were to start a dig and hit a power line because uh, you don't own those rights. That's the government right under there. So, yeah, that all ties in. That makes sense. Yeah. I wonder if there's yeah, anything. Like... I didn't know the nuance side, but I know the broader yeah. side of it. <laughs> well, that actually helps make it more clear to me how they kind of get that uh, right to claim the fossils yeah. below the surface. Yeah. So, similar. when you, it used to be traditionally when you'd own property, you would own both subsurface. Basically, they used mm-hmm. to say down to the depths of hell and up into the heights of heaven. And now with. Very, uh, very legal. Very, yeah. yeah. And now with. with planes and all of that they have basically go up into is reasonable and potentially nothing nothing below mm. so it well it's always within reason is mm-hmm. what they're going to put so if you have to access it for reason then there's going to be liability connected to like power lines and things like yeah. that but yeah. Gotcha. yeah 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 you used to be able to just put up whatever you want people could build the uh, way up high into their, uh, but yeah, there, there was history of somebody did that yeah. built built up incredibly tall on purpose to interfere with someone else's uh, flight path. That was yeah, 
and uh, and that's when those laws started changing. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds like early 1900s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was sense. like just yeah, that, 1930s, like, 40s. Zone. Yeah, yeah. That like that like really old school capitalism where it's like I'm gonna build a building just to your Zeppelin and forget it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> yeah. The voices were always more nasally. Oh, oh, yeah. I think always. it was just like what they yeah. what what they could record. It just got that that middle ground. Yeah, you know the voice. So it's always just like really up here, and it's like guess what. And I, was, I, I wonder though, like, is there any like rogue, uh, like, or more like, you know, a more rogue paleontologists that are just like, you know, like the kind that, like, if they get caught, it's like turn in your badge and your, you know, yeah. microscope, you know, like they're going out there and they're not. That's, uh, a, that's a loaded question. Well, because uh, I, I guarantee, like, a lot of this, uh, a lot of these dinosaur uh, bones are probably on private property, and yeah. You know, that, that so, probably gets into a gray area there, you know? For sure. I'd say there's a few types almost. Mm-hmm. Um, there are those that abuse their position kind of being either a student or a professional paleontologist, I would say. Yeah. And they get a little bit loosey-goosey with it. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because I, I would never promote that as the way to go for a paleontologist because it's best to do it, you know, on good terms with everyone that you're involved well, for with. For sure. Build yeah. good connections, generally speaking, between government people and your own research you want all that to kind of mesh well so that you have a very easy and cohesive process going forward and it, it helps it only helps you for your career if you want to become a you know professional paleontologist mm-hmm. as a professor or a curator of a museum so there are people that i think kind of give the wrong impression and they are in a position where they are able or they are a student like myself i'll say and you know they kind of have that yeah we won't go too much in that one and then there's the people that are are public or private, and they kind of get a, a, a sense for it or a taste for it. And they, it's generally harmless, I'll say, but it does kind of get to uncomfortable territory because it almost, again, paints that sort of image that, you know, there's no restrictions on it. It almost kind of makes it feel like, you know, it can all just do this. It can all just go out and mm. have at it type thing. And that would be a big detriment to the science, I guess. And yeah. so one aspect that I do like that there's regulation over fossils is that it gives science the priority. Yeah. The only way we can understand and actually make any meaningful um, discoveries is through a scientific method where we actually keep track of where it's found, what sediments it was found in, and the, the orientation it was found. All these things matter in the big picture. And without that information, without missing, with missing just even some of those bits, it almost loses its relevance to science. Because if you promote a specimen in a paper, but you can't say where it came from, or you can't say, you know, which rocks it was found in, it suddenly loses all that context. And yeah. now all you can talk about is essentially its morphology and that specimen. But the specimen yeah. is essentially in, in the nebula of nothing because we don't know where it comes from. And that's the people Fair. who just want to have something for the sake of having it as opposed to yeah. like contributing towards the discovery, right? E- exactly. And I do think there is something to be said about the future of paleontology and how it works of a more cohesive public and scientist cooperation yeah but there definitely needs to be systems that are put in place where when people who go out to private collect and feel involved and also contribute meaningfully so if people are out with a gps say and cell phone reception and they can find a specimen take a gps coordinate take a picture and then just send the picture kind of straight on to a professional paleontologist whether it be the u of a or the tyrell museum it gives us the context. It allows us to gauge, is it something we need to go out and collect? Like, how important is this specimen based on this photograph? Out of curiosity, what mm-hmm. are the most important specimens? That- Articulated specimens definitely have the most context. And I, I said context a lot. And that just kind of means associated 
elements of a skeleton mm -hmm. give you that information of what's the relationship, say, between the humerus bone and, you know, the foot. Mm -hmm. If we have all that, then we can actually say, what relationship do these bones have with humerus? You know, does it belong to this species or that species? Well, maybe you can't tell from a humerus. Fair, yeah. But you can use it and say, well, we know it's a tell from a humerus. Fair, yeah. But you can use it and say, well, we know it's a hadris or a, fem or a humerus, sorry. And then we can do thin sections of the humerus and we can get in a, a sense of how do hadrosaurs grow. So it does have relevance there. But when you have context with a skeleton or more of a skeleton, it just gives you that much extra and it gives you more confidence in those hypotheses you present forward and the things you look at. So, so. just basically like the, just the amount of uh, like skeletal, skeletal structure you see is mm -hmm. kind of you know, what determines what would be something that would be sought after more or less, I suppose? Or? Yeah, it definitely gives a, an importance to it. So if someone were to take a picture, again, we'll use the humerus example, and it's just yeah. one humerus weathering of the hill, and it's in a bunch of pieces of it's really yeah. fragmented. We might not view it as high importance to go out and collect. Yeah. If someone shows uh, you know, a humerus that's just starting to stick out of the hill, ah. then it becomes more, me or more impactful or more meaningful for us to get out and, and explore it just to see. Oh. And uh, since we have the permits, we can actually take the hill back and see, is it attached to another part of the specimen? Uh, the other thing that's really important to us, too, is microsites. And this is where it actually is more of a conflict between the public and the science side of it, is that microsites are where a lot of small bits are being exposed and shown, and you can find a whole bunch of stuff. And those sites are really important for community structure, because mm -hmm. you don't just find dinosaur bits, you find fish, amphibians, okay. lizards, all the everything that's basically living in that same area. Yeah. So microsite studies really give us a sense of what's the community structure look like of these Cretaceous rocks or whatever age of rocks, really like Jurassic, Triassic. And so those ones are difficult because the public can walk by and find a bunch of stuff lying on the surface and collect them. And then suddenly we lose those data points because every fossil is sort of a data point in a microsite. Yeah. And so we might not get a true sense of the community structure if we have that sort of conflict. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Just constant interference with the the story, kind of like the yeah string being pulled out of the fabric kind of thing. Yeah. Every time and they do it. One way we try to get around it is we, from microsites, we like to take a sediment sample that hasn't been eroded yet. So we'll take a chunk of the rock kind of with us and then we'll sift through it. So we'll do a screen washing process to get rid of all the sediment and then only the fossils will be there. And so this gives us a good sample that's not biased towards collection. So if people were collecting from the surface before, it should be sort of immune to that interference. So yeah. that's one way around it, but it does still pose the, that issue. So when we do surface collect, we might find really cool stuff, but we have to kind of treat it a little bit less um, objectively, I guess, than yeah. an actual sediment sample. How do you how do you cut the rocks out? Like, what tools do you use? Because like a lot of these are like like in the article, the one of the big uh, issues you were trying to overcome was just traveling to and from the site itself. Mm -hmm. Like the the heavy duty equipment, I can imagine would yeah. be difficult to get out there. So usually, the rocks for microsites are luckily kind of soft sediment. In a oh, way. Okay. So a lot of times with a pickaxe, you can break up the rock to pretty small and manageable chunks, and then you just take a shovel. And put it into, we used, I think, potato sacks is basically what we use. Oh, perfect. Fair enough. Yeah. So we just sort of shovel out the rock, put it in there, and we expect that there's fossils within it. But we won't know until we've gone through the whole screen washing process. But uh, that can be pretty intensive. So we do have a microsite that's about a kilometer and a bit from the campsite. And so there was one year where we collected, I think, 12, 13 sediment samples. So they each got to close to about 50 pounds, and we had to walk them back Oof. to camp and stuff like that. So... 
it's okay and it's doable but as example the hadra server we're excavating is three kilometers away yeah and if we get any jacket that's you know over that hundred pound mark mm -hmm. it, it becomes really difficult to do and it makes our walk back twice as long three times as long it's like the better the I find imagine, the harder yeah. it is to do anything with it so like if you were yeah. to find a full you know for lack of a like a, a horse size specimen we're yeah. talking in stone form probably close to two thousand pounds i would imagine exactly like had we just taken the skeleton as a single block it would have easily been about two thousand pounds yeah just to take <laughs> that that's and, crazy yeah and so obviously we can't walk that out of there even with 20 mcgillions if we could get them i don't think they could drag it three kilometers <laughs> yeah would, that would be uh yeah. it'd be interesting to kind of ask him too uh, so, like, what are some of the resources you guys could kind of use? I mean, like, in the article, you were asking, like, if there were any helicopters or mm -hmm. there was any, like, donators. Like, just to our listening audience, like, what's something you guys could uh, could maybe use in the future a little more? Yeah, well, I, I think by reaching out, it was mostly because I no one really gave a straight answer. Mm -hmm. I definitely, we had talked about it for a couple of years now about how we were going to get the skeleton out. Yeah. Talked about with supervisors, other people outside, but no one really gave just like a straight answer. Oh, like, oh yeah, you just go here. You talk to these people. Yeah. But there wasn't like a clear way of how do I do this. And so because we got to this year, we still didn't get the skeleton out. We realized it's so articulated and so closely together. Like we can't make it any smaller in jackets. Like we've gone as far as we can doing that. Now we have to collect what's there. And so it became an actual thing where like I need to know. Like I need to find my own way to sort of do this. So mm -hmm. I decided to just ask in the sense of the media or just like propose the story so yeah. could see what was out there. And I think the big advantage to that is now going forward, we have connections, we have options, we have people that we know are willing to help and they're awesome. happy to just be included. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a huge help for us. And honestly, I think it's the the best thing I could have done. The only downside is how many emails I got. There's so many <laughs> yeah. still coming through and I've tried to personalize every email to every person. So it's taken a while to go through them. But it's it's really great to see so many people willing to step up and offer their time and their resources. And the reason that, you know, we even are in that position is just as students, we have limited funding we can apply for. Yeah. And, you know, our supervisors have their own research plans and their own things they're doing. So we can't really get any more of their research funds for our own sort of personal, well, I shouldn't say personal, but our own student driven activities. Yeah, yeah. yeah sure. So that's why we were running to the issue, because the funding we get is about three thousand dollars a year. And so with that, it basically, oh, that's it, eh? yeah, that's, that's what we've got. So that doesn't it doesn't seem like a lot. No, it gets consumed very <laughs> quickly by renting a, a truck just to transport our equipment, uh, paying for a campsite, which we could go to a private camping system up in the field at someone's property, which has been done in the past. Mm -hmm. um, but we do lose a lot of amenities and abilities to get equipment even in there because now we're dealing with fields and yeah. we're up at the top of a hill trying to go down whereas where we're camping we're actually at well, the if, valley if level you need to rent a helicopter three three grand is not going to cover that no exactly <laughs> and it, that's not even going to be the fuel like, yeah yeah <laughs> and so that's the other part of it's like a helicopter would be ideal in the yeah. sense that it's a true and tried method that we know works mm -hmm. um and luckily when i did reach out a helicopter company did reach out to me oh, that's great and they said that they had done a, a skull lift for the canadian museum of nature in 2018 i believe and they were willing to do one for us too so we have the wow. commitment of a helicopter. Nice. So, yeah. So things worked out really well. I say that we're covered for options. We have so many options That's now. Great. It's That's just, great. Uh, you know, to any listeners, I would like to say a huge thanks if you're one of the people that reached out, <laughs> even if you were just interested in it. Yeah. Like it's a, we're tremendously grateful and it's a huge help just to even have that 
that offer because we are so limited in terms of yeah, finances. Yeah, so. I suppose in the future, like, are you guys able to do your own fundraising for that? Or it's it's an option we thought about, and mm-hmm. it's just that it's we're we're pretty busy with our own research, our own activities, and while we talk about it it's hard to get that ball rolling. Yeah. Um, so it was great to, when you reached out to, we've been talking about potentially doing a fundraising idea. And I think that is a great way to go for research in general. Um, yeah. I was just at the Tyrol this weekend actually, and they even have it. There's two sort of donation bins and it's just helped fund our research. And it's because research money is, money is limited by either government grants mm-hmm. having a set amount and they have to be divided, not just for paleontology, but all the sciences and then also public interest. So, I mean, if the public's that, really exactly interested. That's exactly it, yeah. yeah. Like, I'm looking at this and I'm like, well, you guys are running, doing all this on a $3,000 budget. That's incredible. And, you know, <laughs> I, I, the political parties will get like easily, like multiple times that. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, even just uh, mayors and, you know, uh, people running for, you know, uh, counselor yeah, positions. three zeros and yeah. that's the war room. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? And it's just, it just, it baffles me that like this is something well, that's four like. Four zeros. Uh, inherently like our province like provincially owned like we like we talked about and i think there's just a lot more following behind you know dinosaurs than maybe getting involved politically but it just it seems to me that uh you know that the tax advantages you get to donating to a political party it might be a little more you know advantageous than donating to this education uh, i think you'd probably get similar but yeah I, that's that's, I, you, that's what I think, i'm saying i mean like I, I, tristan's got the law background i've spent most of my year in sales right mm-hmm. so i just kind of look at it it's like well i could continue doing this in the car business or you know maybe look at helping out uh you know a non-profit such as you guys with yeah. you know a little <laughs> bit of sales skills and doing some cold calls get some money in the purse but well, uh <laughs> The other part about the funding uh, that we've had so far, yeah. it's been post field work. So we've had to do all the costs up front and then get oh. reimbursed. That's and always fun. That, yeah, I love, I love asking for money that I've already yeah. spent for. Yeah. That's even better. Basically, well, we ask for it in advance, but yeah. we don't get the money in advance. Mm-hmm. We have to then try to stay within the budget of our own spending mm-hmm. and then get reimbursed. And it, it works and it's been fine so far. But I mean, I, I think it was last year when I was co-leading, I was in a pretty dire financial situation myself well, so. as most students are right? yeah like so i only contributed a few hundred dollars and luckily my other um colleague had more money on her credit card and she could put more of it to that so the reimbursement mostly went to her which is all fine and as long as it goes to the right places but it's just the fact that like that is an obstacle in and of itself yeah, yeah. it's not even having money up front to sort of you know manage or deal with it's kind of this weird sort of process of you're, you're trying to manage an amount you don't even know. You can't even visualize it just yet. Right. Because you're kind of like still sticking into what you're, you're spending at the moment yeah. and thinking like, I hope this is lower than the amount I asked for. That could, like, that could yeah. really burn you too though. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's why, why put yourself at that risk? That's just, Ooh. Yeah. No and good. This year was particularly difficult because due to the COVID restrictions that the university had in place, everyone had to buy their buy and prepare their own food. Oh, good. So normally we do communal suppers, which are quite lavish. Actually, I got to say, we do we do pretty good for our suppers. People good. are well fed in the fields. Well, <laughs> you should be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it was yeah. always the best part when you would go to an outdoor school. The worst thing was always getting a horrible meal because you're yeah. you're spending all your time out there. The best thing is always getting a great meal. Like yep. ending your day on a good meal when you're camping or you're spending your time outdoors. That's exactly. that's the way it should be. Yeah, like yeah most of us probably gained weight when we left the field. I would say. 
Oh yeah, shit! Because we were that well fed, but it was wow. good. It was good for morale. We were all very yeah, happy exactly. to get out there, and we always loved the field. Well, work. if you're able to do that on a three thousand dollar budget too, like I, yeah. I don't imagine guys are eating like fragua and looking for like no, it's, mignon either, right? It's like just it's, like having like you know actually cooked and seasoned yeah. meat as well as like a a, a more um, a prettier. I don't know the right term. I guess a, a prettier vegetable dish to go with it. Yeah, than yeah, just, exactly. And just be like, here's some lettuce. Here's some just barely cooked chicken. There you go. How about her? So, you think we could have been eating like dino? Mm-hmm. Like, is that edible meat? Oh, I think wait, it would be lizard. Like, I heard it tastes like yeah. chicken, but like it could be like snake, it where it's great. like there's a lot of like bones inside the meat too. Yeah, and, I don't know. Was that was that like a thing with dinosaurs? Like they had like, <laughs> no, you know, if you've no. ever had snake, like it's like it's a kind of meat, but like they got like the. There's just a whole bunch of bones inside of it. It's not that the best way to look at it. So we, I'll, this is great to talk about it in terms of flavor of meat, but sure. we use this uh, <laughs> this technique for studying dinosaurs called the phylogenetic bracket. So it's when you have an extinct group that's sandwiched between two living groups. Yeah. So the two living groups we have are birds and crocodiles. So a lot of our inferences about dinosaur soft tissue anatomy comes from these two living individuals. And Fair, yeah. I'm going to caveat that right away with when you think of these two, they don't really match like a T-Rex or a hadrosaur because one's aquatic or semi-aquatic and the other flies and has feathers all over it. So it works to some extent, but there's obviously limitations to it. Yeah. So I guess my interpretation is that anything closer to birds probably would have more of a chickeny taste to yeah, it. Yeah. So the theropod dinosaurs, the T-Rex, the... Um, sorry, the, uh, the, the raptor dinosaurs, things like that would probably be more. They'd also have a lot more muscle taste. compared to like maybe fat, like chicken, right? Yeah. So probably be a lot more gamey. Or you just do like a, a long stew. Like you got to get yeah, like a good stew. stew. Yeah. This is a T-Rex stew. It's going yeah. to sit for like eight hours and simmer. You know, you got to make it all tender in that. I mean, I'm hoping that the people at this time would have even had fire if there were people, depending <laughs> yeah. like the versions of humanoids that could have existed <laughs> yeah, at no, certain as, points. As far well, as according to the Bible, we were there with them. Yeah. Like, haven't you been to like you know Holy <laughs> Land, Orlando? Like, yeah. well, yeah, obviously this is not a 71 million year old thing because <laughs> no, no, that, that didn't exist. It's only 6,000 year old Earth. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but no, I'm I'm actually kind of curious because one of the things that we and this is going to sound kind of it's a it's a weird tangential connection <laughs> but when i was uh in law school one of the things that we talked about was um because we were in indigenous territory mm-hmm. and a lot of it was uh, uh indigenous stories are our oral history oh. and so they were talking oral history about like um animals that had existed before mm-hmm. and i'm curious when you go out because there's uh, there's 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 going to be a lot of animals between the dinosaurs yeah. and between common animals that you could also find that would also lend a lot of interest to science and the history mm. of of just the geography and the topography yeah. of 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 North America. Do you guys collect those specimens as well? Like one one of the ones I remember just in my mind was uh, giant beavers and I was like my first my first giant position beavers? Yeah. yeah. My my first position is always to be a hyper skeptic, but if you look into it, this is a it, this is something that actually existed in North America. They were they were enormous. I can't remember how big, but they were like but they had the tail and all that. I that I don't I don't know. That's why I'm curious. Do yeah. these specimens get picked up because they wouldn't go to the normal museum of like they because yeah. you think of it as a, almost like different. I guess kind of the same way we blend a ter- uh, like like uh, uh, dinosaurs that existed 71 million years ago versus the ones that are 260 million. In our minds, we we collect them all together as dinosaurs in one yeah. like homogenous group. 
how how do those specimens get collected does anything get done with those i'm just curious no yeah uh, they definitely do get collected we kind of have like a division of labor in a sense in the province here so the tyrol is predominantly focused on dinosaur research and then the royal alberta museum is kind of what focuses on the mammals between dinosaurs and now oh okay so a lot of the stuff that is within that range we sort of defer to the royal alberta museum so like your saber-toothed tigers, yeah. your mammoths, stuff yeah. like that. Stuff like that. Stuff. Gotcha. Some of those specimens Giant have been beavers. collected for the Tyrol, um, especially in the past, because the Tyrol was a lot of the collections from the RAM back in the 70s that moved to the Tyrol location, and they took that with them. Yeah. And then yeah. since then, that's where that division sort of happened, of like dinosaurs there, mammals and other things kind of at the RAM. And then universities can do what they'd like but it's dependent on the researcher in charge of those investigations. So at the University of Alberta, we have Bill Curry and Corwin Sullivan who work on dinosaur research. So they collect dinosaur specimens and we're allowed to keep them at the university as a fossil repository. But then you also have Alison Murray, which studies fish, so fish fossils and things like that. So if she does collect fish or fish are collected for the university, she kind of goes and oversees those. Um, If there are lizards or marine reptiles that are collected by the university crews they would go to mike caldwell who kind of curates over that and his focus is on um, lizards and marine reptiles and things like that so we got to get mike on to talk about ogopogo and all those yeah. other potentials yeah well actually I'm, i've now entered mike's lab so i'm actually moving from dinosaurs into snakes myself so oh cool, oh, cool. Wow. yeah yeah so uh it's it's kind of division like that so it's based on research interest at university level yeah. but in museum curator level they try to keep their own sort of thing which allows public to um, go to both you know to promote each other rather than to sort of compete with each other yeah, yeah. that makes sense it does seem like i get and, and this could just be me mapping my own views onto the world but it seems like the popularity contest is definitely being won by dinosaurs like you never you don't see the telus world of science going like hey here's the mammals between that yeah, existed and, from yeah. two million years ago to now I think right. they sh- I should. I, you mentioned the indigenous aspect of it. And what's really interesting to me, and I, I don't study it, so I'm not an expert by any means, is just that Ice Age mammal time to now. There's a lot of things that happened and changed and indigenous peoples would have been involved in all that yeah. to some extent. And so really trying to figure out that history, both from their cultural side of it, as well as the fossil record and kind of what we see would be interesting to see where that overlaps and what evidence can kind of be grabbed from both sides. Totally. A very interesting story. So I, I do think the Telus World of Science should do something like that, which would be a really cool way to blend paleo, archaeology, indigenous cultures all into a sort of a big concept. Because um, like one major thing that we look at is extinctions in, yeah. in paleontology. And one of the big ones, the recent one, was the megafauna or the big animals of the Ice Age mammals, so like the woolly mammoths, the yeah. um, other mastodons and things like that okay. went extinct, as well as the large carnivores. So it's like, what happened to these? Was it just because the ice was melting? Was it from human interaction and things like that? And so yeah. I have lots of ideas that I think are would be interesting for someone to look into. Again, I, I don't specialize in it, so I'm not the one to do it by any means, but I think it's a, it's a cool avenue for collaboration and yeah, I've actually research, so. I've read a little bit on the ice, more ice age related stuff, just because I've always had it's kind of connected. I've had a, a a very keen interest in Egyptian history, and when you start realizing that things were uncovered as opposed to being built at certain years, mm-hmm. based off of water erosion marks and things like that, that are still more on the fringes of science. But uh, yeah, I find I find a 
the because I know that there was there's a, the young Adrius impact theory that uh, that there was the I think it was like ten thousand to eleven thousand eight hundred years ago that there was a supposed uh, impact that would have hit into the ice craters in North America, the ice sheets in North America, which caused a wipeout. That's one of the hmm. the more prominent theories that I've, I've met, I read about, but. Um, and, and everybody's looking for the impact crater, the impact crater that and would have caused it. What was that it. called? The Younger Dryas, uh, impact, uh, That's familiar, but yeah. I don't know, I don't know too much. It was about off that of, one, so. and I'm, and this was a pre, pre-Trumpian JRE. So Joe yeah. Rogan experience, but before, before he decided to go oh, crazy boy. with his <laughs> political stuff, <laughs> yeah. when he would have people that were just kind of cool and interesting talking yeah. about stuff. And that was one just of the trying ones. To, we're just trying to do that here. Yeah, yeah exactly. Just, we're yeah. we're <laughs> just branching out a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, no, I'm, a, I'm always fascinated by the connection of oral stories and oral history to that. I think yeah. that there would be. There's something cool there. Like we've talked in the past, obviously being more of a political show that uh, that because we've talked about the education system and and how it's heavily influenced by religion. And there's a lot of calls for people to pull religion out. And one of the things that we've always kind yeah. of agreed on is that we would teach actually rather history. teach it as a history course. Yeah. As like this is when they started believing this. This is the most likely influence for why they believe these things because then we can connect our our stories with our actual history. There's yeah. a, it's not to say that the stories are lies, but the stories are a flowery version of what happened yeah. and they don't connect directly. And then the science has no, there's no uh, emotion to it, right? It's very raw database. So yeah, this lived this way. This is most likely what it ate. And it's not going to give you that like, oh, this is how it used to roam and what it would do from its hunting patterns. It's like, that's more of the story side. So yeah, there's that middle ground where you can kind of teach people everything and kind of bring it all across. And that's mm-hmm. something that, yeah, the more, the more I hear people like yourself, uh, explaining like the dinosaur, I just, I, I would love to have that all connected into a history course and just have the yeah. year long. Cause I mean, it, it all connects into human history. Like the Royal Alec would then have, you know, potentially like who knows maybe a, a denisovan <laughs> uh body that they could then study and like an ancient humanoid uh uh ape that was a giant ape that could have mm-hmm. connected to us at some point in time i find that history seems to be almost i don't want to say purposefully missing but there's a, there's a zone of time oh, just, i was that, just gonna say it absolutely has to be purposely missing because it, it directly it, connects to humans that's exactly it right mm-hmm. and you know it, it's just we have like the three major religions of the world all saying that you know this this stuff didn't happen question i have like obviously <laughs> like being with dinosaurs doing all that yeah. you, you've seen like mass extinction events like even throughout the dinosaur eras you know mm-hmm. the jurassic cretaceous all this you know, to, yeah. to now, uh, you can see in the sediment, you know, certain amounts of uh, oxygen in the air based on the plant sizes. You can see, like, you know, the, how compressed the, uh, the carbon is to kind of determine how much, you know, CO2 is emitted. Like, w- when you look at that and you kind of see, like, this this kind of circle of life, you know, again and again and again, like, do, are you kind of on the perspective that humanity is kind of on that tipping point here with everything that's going on climate wise yeah yeah <laughs> so i mean we kind of my education experience has been always talking about that yes that's yeah so i yeah. figured get your perspective so it's definitely something that is prominently there and one thing it's great you're talking about politics and like different viewpoints mm-hmm. and stuff yeah. uh i guess i'll i wanted to address one point you made and i'll answer your question no once i do it yeah, yeah, but yeah. the idea of teaching 
the history of religion and how it came to be, I think is important. I think there's a big push from a lot of people to, you know, not want to talk about things that maybe are opposing to a belief, yeah. but truthfully, the best way to understand things and actually have a more middle ground to reach the gooch ground is to, <laughs> hey, nice. yeah, is, to <laughs> is to talk about history and what led to it and be honest with it. You know, yeah. there's mistakes on all sides mm-hmm. and there's, you know, poor approaches to things on all sides. Yeah. But to talk about it and be open about it is the best harmonious way. And that also comes back into the science side of it. Like the science is not without fault in a lot of early times. Science was used to do pretty horrific things. Um, but the, point of science or the goal of science is to not have that influence it's supposed to try to look at things as objectively as we can not Mm -hmm. that it's perfect in that sense but to look at it and try and just understand the interrelationships of different things whether it be chemical reactions biological reactions or interactions physical properties of the universe you know so on and so forth it's to understand those things and then understand the human impact on that or influence into it is important so it kind of goes back again to that that understanding how we do play into it is important we are part of this world whether we want to admit it or not we belong to the same same sphere we have Mm -hmm. the same resources that we have to deal with that all the other animals do too and in a lot of ways we depend on these animals and their success for our own success Mm -hmm. so i very much do think we are going into a mass extinction and humanity might be able to survive it through our ingenuity and our ability to adapt the environment around or us. just our sheer numbers. Yeah. No. But I think it will still be a really sad day because I think the people that do get through will see a really horrific and horrible kind of change in the way the world is. And they'll have to go through a lot. And I'm just sad that that's what we are probably going towards. I don't think we're at a sort of cohesive way of humanity to really understand and focus on these issues as they should be. Yeah, we're too divided on that political spectrum of kind of fighting each other, even though it's not something that any human should be fighting against, really, because it's like we're all you know here. It doesn't matter if you right or left. Well, unless you're a billionaire, then you can fuck off. To That's space. just yeah. it. Yeah, you know, we I, <laughs> I always talk about this, and this conversation comes up a lot with me and my colleagues is the idea of we've created our own natural resource. Like money yeah. is sort of this resource that we value more than real resources in a mm-hmm. sense. And it's to me, it's it sounds so stupid because it's just like in the end, you know, if we went to a total cataclysmic event, your money might buy you some extra longevity. Yeah. But it doesn't really mean anything in the sense of what the world's going to do. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it, you can't directly turn it into your physical success. Yeah. It'll, it'll never be like that. You can pay people to help you succeed. Sure. But it's just it's not something that really ultimately matters in our survival other than the society that we've built and that's it's just yeah i could go down this rabbit hole myself but yeah yeah it's it's just tragic i guess more than anything it's just tragic to look at it from understanding the importance of all these things that a lot of people take for granted and to not see that the action is taken in a rapid sort of way is is tragic i guess yeah so like just just looking at it i mean obviously Human beings are really the only uh, species that we, we, we've created plastics. We kind of change everywhere we're living to suit our mm-hmm. needs better. I mean, it's kind of unlike anything else that's lived on the planet. But like as, as a scientist looking at that, what do you think is going to be like the greatest contributor to that end? You know, is it going to be just be human interaction, not able to get along? Or is it going to be like the, the waste we produce? Yeah. The, the carbon emissions like what what do you think is if there's one thing we could stop mm-hmm. what would that what would that be <clears throat> so if i had to like i guess key down onto one thing to stop mm-hmm. 
I think public expansion, I guess, to me, uh, environment fragmentation is probably the most direct and worst thing that we could do. Hmm. Uh, we could start to reduce our carbon emissions and have a steady decline, which I think would be beneficial. Yeah. But as we fragment more and more environments, we're cutting off the connections of the natural world that need to exist to keep systems operating normally. Okay. Yeah. Carbon can be sort of taken back into the system as long as those systems aren't disrupted. But okay. as we continually expand our cities and our developments to all the new land that you know is available... We reduce that more and more in a much more direct and drastic way, I think. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's it is those systems that could keep us going. And uh, I think that's that's probably the big one. So I, I see places Canada kind of has this as a, a major issue because yeah. we are in such a wide open area. We tend to expand outwards. Yeah. yeah. Uh, other cities have already had to expand upwards because they've ran out of that sort of lateral space. Mm-hmm. But in reality, even if you have the lateral space, we should probably be planning to move upwards. Hmm. We should build up rather than out if we can we yeah. can do that. And that's that's, that's that connects yeah. to a whole bunch of different things too. I mean like from like in Vancouver where there's bears regularly interacting with people and it's because they've expanded into their territories yeah. up, up up the mountain hills. This is not like it's not a bear issue. It's a it's a societal yeah. expansion one as yeah. you said, like community expanding beyond the bounds it, it plays right into the amazon forest getting taken down at the same time that we're you know quadrupling yeah. our use of single-use plastics around the world so it's like uh, there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of sad sadness that goes into looking at that potential outcome there mm-hmm. um one of the things that we've kind of jokingly brought up a few times because as much as we like to have it as a debate left and right, we at the end of the day kind of agree that you can't go extreme either way. There has to be a level of respect for both positions and that we have to negotiate the best case scenario for both sides. Because if I try to win, then ultimately I'm going to be making him, putting him into the position of losing and vice versa. And one of the the things that we came up with was like basically the only way for humans to get out of this and come together is for aliens to come in and invade us very publicly (laughs) so that, so that we, uh, we can no longer deny their existence and all of humanity has to go, okay, you know what? I did hate you before Kim, but if you can name your nukes up and we're good, Right. Yeah. Like the, the, then all of the sudden problems change. Yeah. It's it's true. And I think uh, back to like the, the climate change or shifting, yeah. it will become very public as it continues. Like, yeah. There's a lot of that sort of issue of people are some some people, a lot of people are so disconnected from it that it's not something they view as a, a real issue yeah. because they're living a comfortable life. They're not seeing it. But I mean, this year and the past few years kind of speaks to we are looking at long term changes. They're already mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. Forest fires have become much more common. Heat is increasing in terms of its extremes. We do yeah. get fluctuation, and there is a cyclic sort of pattern to the world and systems. But if that cycle and the median of that cycle is constantly rising, then you still have that issue. Like, mm-hmm. regardless, yeah. it's like, oh, maybe we'll have the coldest winter we've ever had this winter. That doesn't mean we're not going to have the hottest summer next year because we might. We might have the hottest yeah, well, summer. Well, I think this was the globally, yeah. it was the hottest year the earth has ever experienced is that not yeah i think i, I, think I, yeah, I remember that reading so. that somewhere yeah. Yeah. My, yeah. my partner read that out to me actually she she had mentioned that that's what they had said that it was the really i guess the hottest I overall believe it. yeah well yeah i mean we we've had a 
we've had either a heat wave warning or a thunderstorm warning on our phones every day I've woken up for the yeah. last two months. No, or I think yeah. that, sorry, there was one week where, where air we quality didn't. too, right? Yeah, now yeah, we have air, air quality, quality because <laughs> of all the. Well, yeah. I know it's not a direct correlation to the climate change, but it is the forest fires. Just looking outside at the haze, yeah, it feels apocalyptic. So yeah. oh, it we, does. We yeah. just you feel like you're in that world already. At least living in Alberta, where Saskatchewan and BC smoke is yeah. just. Oh, it's yeah. just not just not just there too. I mean, yeah. like. Uh, Siberia is on fire. Uh, yeah. There's Greece. They just evacuated. Oh, yeah. You were just uh, showing Germany us Germany's underwater. <laughs> the opposite, yeah. opposite problem. We need their water over here on our fire. Yeah, yeah. yeah we do. Yeah. yeah like, just send over Germany. a tanker. We'll take the water. It's cool, guys. Yeah. yeah. Come help us. We'll help back. No, uh, just, it, it just... Uh, the the more I watch the news, the more I'm like, okay. Like, when I was a kid, there'd be the odd forest fire or whatever. But it just yep. seems mm-hmm. like... Every day now, there's something else, you know, yeah. and maybe that's just because media has gotten so much better and there's a lot more like everybody's got a camera in their pocket nowadays, too. But you got to look at that as well and say these things just weren't recorded back then either. Well, also, we you just know? don't like like how bad how bad is it? <laughs> so that, like, because, <laughs> because most of the places that we're talking, well, all of the places, because the entire society runs on like a massive capitalist machine, which mm, doesn't runs on Duncan, which, it, yeah, oh, which, which is yeah. all private interest. Right. So yeah. there's not a lot of preparation for public disasters so like 20 20 years ago bc used to hire and pay very very well Mm -hmm. people working in the forestry industry to do clean burning something that indigenous communities have been doing in controlled burn areas for a long time in order to prevent massive things like this it was a budgetary thing up front to cut their funding and bring in less experienced people to just do clear cutting where they want and 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 significantly less controls put put in place but it almost reminds me of how you were talking about your own budget of like, this is what I think it's going to cost. And now I'll pay it out of pocket and you'll reimburse me. Mm-hmm. Like the, there's no, there's no commitment from a government entity to ensure that the things that the public needs are met. In mm-hmm. fact, most of the time it's the opposite is like, prove it to me that you need it. Yeah. And then I, maybe I'll give it to you. Yeah, right. Exactly. And that, and, and, and so while while we've we're, we're straying slightly from our political norms, this is one of those. Uh, it, just finding how you get funded, and then talking about climate and all of that, it does seem, again, almost almost impossible to escape the political side of things. Where it doesn't mm-hmm. matter who we elect in, they're not looking out for the public; they're looking out for private interests. And yeah. and it's and it's it's got to be a cycle that ends. Otherwise, it's going to be the one that kills us. I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. maybe. No, I definitely agree. I think so. I've often proposed this, and it's crazy talk. And I, I just say it because I think it's true. I think money and just the greed is is just too much. Like yeah. if we could take it all away somehow, like that wasn't something. I'm not saying like a, a Marxist system by any means. I'm just saying like if it wasn't that we were so fixated on this one thing, you know, we could actually maybe make changes just because it's the right thing to do. If yeah. that wasn't an option, so you know, getting funding for something. It's like if we didn't mm. have to worry about getting funding to get enough, say, solar panels to offset a lot of the energy or to build more yeah. geo or sorry, not geo. Well, even yeah, geothermal electric power plants or <clears throat> um, hydro power plants where they could be beneficial. Things like that. Like if there wasn't a money constraint to those things and we could just do it because we know it's the right thing to do for our longevity. Yeah. Like that would be great. And that's but, like but, ideal. But. but on that point too, and this yeah. is one of those things that I've actually brought up with Evan before because we've talked about like the cost of solar panels mm-hmm. and 
in Canada, so the the um, raw materials you need to to fa- fabricate solar panels in uh, in large quantities are almost exclusively found on the continent that, that contains China. You do, mm-hmm. We don't have access to a lot of the their common elements, but it's just it's more common uh, on right. China on in China in, on Chinese land. Yeah. Oh, they also and, have the infrastructure to get it too. Well, they also yeah. have the infrastructure, but but here's here's the kicker, the political kicker on how those things get funded and why there's massive interference. Mm-hmm. Canada talks about wanting to have a green influence. We export BC especially exports coal to China to continue their coal burning, but at the same time Canada charges a 225% tariff on all imported uh, solar panels coming from China. What they're saying is, is actually in a, not not to be non-green, but it's to give Canadian producers of solar panels a competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. But there's you literally can't because mm-hmm. we don't have the raw materials here. So that's a permanent subsidy to the Canadian producers of solar panels. But it's also a it's a permanent fuck you to Canadians <laughs> who want to access cheap <laughs> solar panels. Yes, yeah, and yeah. so there is no do the right thing, unfortunately, and it kind of all comes back to the same thing of everyone that that gets elected is is oh, it's out actually for interesting because if you if you expand that out to the car industry uh right around when tesla started 2012 ish there was another company called fisker they made the yep. oh they yeah made, i remember that yeah, yep. design in california made in finland and uh they made their fisker karma it was the ev yeah, they called it the eve-er it was yeah. like the trim level it was like oh it goes on forever it was like a hybrid electric vehicle but uh just because of that corporate crony capitalism uh, like we're kind of talking about they had a solar panel on the roof right mm-hmm. and uh that solar panel was obviously made with chinese parts because it was the most cost effective way but when they wanted to get into the north american market they were like well okay you can't really have that we mm-hmm. got to charge you a humongous tariff and that was part of the whole thing like you could park the car outside and it would slowly charge up its hybrid batteries which yeah. is pretty cool it would do that passively uh, you know, you could plug it in as well, but just having yeah. that ability was, yeah. you know, kind of a selling point of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. But when they tariffed that solar panel on the vehicle, it became much more expensive yeah. than the uh, Tesla, which outperformed it, you know, uh, on the track and everything. So also Tesla kind of, you know, looked at the battery situation they had and kind of starved them out of the market. So well, the U.S. is like that in every state, though. Like Oregon, it's actually it's a it's a state crime. So it's criminal law that you cannot collect rainwater. Yeah, that's uh, it's a, to protect the private water producers uh, oh in God. Oregon. Oh, yeah, see, okay. water shouldn't be something that's done no, like that. yeah, right. No. That's pretty it's bad. so gross. Yeah, so yeah. I mean, it's I mean, we thought we talk about like the funding of excavations that honestly, like obviously, with the outpouring of support you've had, uh, shows that there's a large level of pride in Alberta mm-hmm. associated with those kinds of discoveries, and I think that's yeah. awesome. But it also then goes to show that the government doesn't represent the people here because. You're getting an outpouring of support with a three thousand dollar budget that isn't getting supported. Yeah, I should emphasize too. Um, as far as like government grants for things like this, it's even more limited. We're actually getting our funding from a private organization. Oh, geez. that's made from public interest like this, anyways. But to support multiple research projects, they can only give a cap for each individual project. Of course. I'm uh, glad that we privatize it so that we know the guy at the top of that organization is making more than his <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a private or pu- it's not, I don't know how to describe it, I guess. They, they do a lot in terms of payout. So it's interested people that, uh, you know, donate and they t- partake in events and stuff to fund yeah. research projects. So it is that public interest, but the fact that there is an organization that does that and we still have this limit 
is tough. Yeah. Um, and then government funding is usually based on the individual. There's not a lot in terms of like an application for a fieldwork expedition. And if it was something, it'd be competitive to all other sciences as well, right? Where yeah. you have the people that want to maybe study bird migration patterns and they would be in the same pool of public, uh, sorry, government funding as a dinosaur excavation. You just think it'd be like, yeah. I, I, I understand, like I'm from BC and so I, like I've heard most of my life but uh, often failed to fully appreciate Alberta's just disdain for the federal government in general <laughs> of not, not showing an appreciation for the resources. And I think yeah. that when it comes to oil, I can totally understand the, the both, both sides of the argument, but with dinosaurs and, and this kind of thing that is objectively, historical like it Mm -hmm. is objectively important from a historical standpoint for us to know where we came from how our planet was inhabited what what and then it's even cooler to know that we're now on that that land i it seems preposterous to think that we there that there is that there is a shortage of funding for things because of how much pride there is uh in this province for it when we have like a 30 million dollar war room for politics and we don't we can't we can't get a really cool rare specimen that's ready to be pulled out and we couldn't find a helicopter unless we went to the news like it seems mm. absolutely yeah, absurd it's kind of backwards that, yeah. that, that that's not just presumptively funded sure. well my hope is from this experience is that because now i have all this contact information and you know obviously there's too much interest to use everyone's boat you can't yeah. use all the boats or you know the helicopter as well so it's definitely to keep them in touch with it like i want it to kind of be something that they've reached out they want them to be part of this process at least you know yeah. even the planning and letting them know the progress that we do have and it helps to have the options in terms of you know we might have plan a but maybe at the timing of the field work maybe there'll be forest fires or something so maybe a helicopter won't work yeah and then to have a fallback of like hey so you know we will in fact need a boat because we don't have a helicopter and the river's high enough right now so now's a good chance yeah so i think having that information and with you know permission, obviously, I'd, I'd like to pass it forward to future student researchers because at least they have a network that they can access. Yeah. Then it becomes something like they can reach out knowing where to go. And make the contact manual, you know? It's like, you need this, call this number. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just, Put to yeah. page 35. But like, oh. honestly, when it, this is such a trusted institution, like the amount of government funding that goes into universities like the University of Alberta, it, it should just instinctively go, okay, the government trusts this institution to make mm. the decisions it's making. So the, the funding should be the opposite. It should be, of course you're going to dig that out. You do everything afterwards. Mm-hmm. Once we see the bill, if you can't justify it, then we might ask for some of that money back, yeah. right? Like yeah. that that would be the way that would make more sense to me yeah. is like approved up mm-hmm. up front because of fucking course we want that. Like that yeah. the, this nah, brings, this brings attention to our province in a positive light. <laughs> yeah. it, bring, it connects us to science. It's educational. It's going to go into our TELUS world of science where kids can go and here, here you go, capitalists. There's a door fee to go in there. So they'll, yeah. they'll, still, they'll still be making money. Don't <laughs> yeah. worry. Yeah. Right? Like there's there's... It, there's ways of covering it across all boards. It seems so frustrating to look but at. But then it the U of A wouldn't be able to pay its presidents like millions of dollars, like Indira. You know, it's like, a, that's... yes, the U of A situation's definitely gotten worse. Yeah, <laughs> uh, with the UC UCP really like hacked into that, and then of course the university responds in the way that they will, uh, and so a lot of you know jobs aren't being refilled as yeah. a way to save costs, and tuitions no longer have a cap, so those are going to hike up. And things like that. So it it is unfortunate. Like the money doesn't seem to go to the right places yeah. in the institution. And now with less money, it just makes it that much harder. So it's kind of like 
choking someone who's already drowning. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that it's like we need sense. a paleontology only fan site or something. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm just like, how, how do we get this funding? I don't know. Like, fa- like, like, but like seriously though, because you're saying you want to keep these people updated. You want to, we, we would ideally still like the support. Yeah. Maybe if it's just emotional couple of likes, but that's literally what it would be is yeah. it's almost like it's an only fans for dinosaur excavation. I can you just see it now. So you yeah. like bones? Like, oh, you want to see this, this femur bone strip? Here we go. That's, like, take it that's off. Exactly what I was saying. I was like, oh, you saw the femur, but what about the tibia? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I, I yeah. Almost, almost think that would be um, a good way to do it in the sense of... we, we do, do a, a comedy of, page. We'd probably yeah. get a lot of likes. Yeah, yeah seriously. We, we, we do a lot of public posts, which are, you know, free access, open yeah. access and stuff. And that's because we want to outreach to the public and get that public interest and support regardless. But I mean, if there was like an extra thing where you could show more stuff and then yeah. donate a little bit of money, like that honestly would help in the sense that we just don't have a lot to work with. So hmm. I could probably build a CV or a resume on going below budget because that's been my whole goal <laughs> for all this is just yeah. I get a budget and then I think, how can I hack that down now yeah. to be even less? And so far, I've always gone under budget except for this year due to the COVID issues uh individual purchases of yeah. food yeah. Extra. we should we should honestly yeah. be getting you to run for mayor because uh somehow <laughs> yeah. political organi- organizations go oh that's my budget how do i triple it yeah, yeah. Like- <laughs> it's like that it's like i don't know if you watch the new rick and morty but like there's the one Haven't episode no uh where uh like it, rick in order to kind of get away with all the shenanigans he turns himself into a turkey to get pardoned by the u.s president and the turkey pardon that's actually uh, genius it, it is genius yeah, yeah. Is. so apparently he's done it a whole bunch of times and just yeah it's a, just shenanigans that kind of go through there but like yeah. how, how like w- when you look at this situation uh I, how late are we running here adam uh hour 15 right now okay yeah we can keep keep going yeah it's uh like i i just i just kind of wonder like what what got you into uh paleontology in the first place like what was it that was like that shit (laughs) jurassic park right it it was but my story's different than a lot of people um so you know you often ask paleontologists like what got you into this well i've always wanted to do this i've always wanted to be paleontologist and a lot of kids do and i I, my story's not that different except for how i grew to like dinosaurs because at first i was terrified of dinosaurs so Jurassic Park came out when I turned two and my mom took me to the theater no. and I was like vibrating with fear and she had to just take me out of the theater. So I, I couldn't I couldn't be there. And then I remember visiting Milk River. They had a statue of an Albertosaurus there and my brother went to go climb it and I was freaking out in the car. I was like screaming. I thought I was going to eat him. I just for some reason I thought it was real. <laughs> nice. But then when Jurassic Park came out, I had to have it for some reason. So my parents bought it and put it in the VHS player and I would try to watch it. But then as soon as the T-Rex came out, I would run out of the room and hide. Yeah, and then eventually I could like peek around the corner, to being behind the chair until finally I could sit through the whole movie. So I sort of conditioned myself to like dinosaurs, and then uh. after that, my fear and awe of dinosaurs became the passion that you know always yeah. kept me going with right it. On. And through my years, I actually jumped a lot between different science fields, but it was always related to predatory animals. For some reason, predatory predatory animals always captured my interest, whether it be sharks, crocodiles, snakes, big cats, all things that kind of were. Like good predators. I was like, that's what I want to study. Oh, yeah. And so with dinosaurs, I gravitated towards, you know, the theropod dinosaurs. And I did my master's research actually on uh, raptor dinosaurs. So I'm trying to get some papers published from my master's thesis. And now I've switched to snakes. And for me, that's not a bad switch at all because I used to love snakes as a kid anyways, too. And studying the fossil snakes is really interesting because we had giant matsoid snakes, which were usually compared to things like anacondas but uh research has shown they're quite different from anacondas and probably were a bit more marine so 
Oh, oh man! Shit, Anytime that's... you see marine-based snakes, it yeah, always makes me nervous. That and, yeah. like, the I'm already snakes. uncomfortable on water, like <laughs> yeah, in large bodies of yeah. water. You see one on top, and you're just like, "No, that's my spot. I don't go underneath." <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, always makes me uncomfortable. But yeah, I, yeah it makes that's it, cool. I like the the strong emotion tie, whether it was yeah. fear or not. Obviously, you had strong emotions for it, and you were just like, oh, "I'm going." Through yeah, this. I guess that maybe makes sense why I'm attracted to the predatory animals too. Is that you know that's what i was scared of yeah um so there was that intrigue it's like and, a glutton for punishment yeah the fascination huh. with like yeah. i mean fear is part excitement right yeah you know? totally so there is that same sort of response you get and uh i think that really tied me to it and I, I like i said i jumped back and forth and i actually had a son at the end of my high school sort of career and at that point i was unsure of what i wanted to do leaving high school so i took three years off first three years with my son um and then i went into school and I was trying to decide what to go in for because I had tried acting like straight out of high school and I yep. didn't make the cut. So I was like really bummed out about that. Um, but then I was like, science is something I could work with. Like I could just always work at it and I love science. So I'll go into that. And I was deciding between physics and paleontology because both those things really capture my imagination, which again, makes sense for most kids like stars, yeah. dinosaurs, yeah. those things. And uh, while I was doing that, I was holding open this book called the ultimate book of dinosaurs. And I was just drawing you know, scale drawings of dinosaurs with facts stuff. I'm like, I think this is probably what I want to do. Yeah. This seems to be what my passion really is like going towards. So that's when I decided paleontology and went for that. So that's oh, right awesome. Yeah. That's so awesome. It's so nice to hear someone following their passion. Neither of us have a passion story here. And I don't think, I mean, Adam a little bit more. It's, it's, it's definitely with the audio side of things. I yeah. know that was more something you were interested in. <laughs> yeah. Long yeah. A lot of it's just circumstantial in my life. I did a year of engineering after high school and I was like, I, I hate this. I can't fucking do this. And it was just like, you just got pushed into it by my family. It was like, oh, you want to make yeah. money? You want to be successful? Boom, do that. And then uh, that's where I met my wife and then just hated it. I uh, had like four months off between my first and second year. I but you love your wife. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's just, just the education side yeah. of it. It was just like, uh, ah, okay. yeah. uh, you know, like I, I just I had a really close friend as well. Um just kind of crumble under the pressure of, you know, university testing. And yeah, he took his own life and. Oh, <laughs> yeah, and it was really unfortunate. It just kind of really shook me up, and then uh, just the lack of response from the U of A was just like, oh, you can go talk to these people. They're like these psych students, and then you go sit down with them, and you're like, this is what happened. And they're like, you need an actual doctor. That's that's all I got told. It was like, fuck yeah. off. Like I waited a month and a half to sit with this guy. It was like this psych student, and it was like, oh well, yeah. Now you go talk to a real doctor. We'll refer you. It's like, well, I could have just done that in the first place. Yeah, there just wasn't a lot of support, and just the whole. Uh, you know, financial side of it too, just kind of disgusted me. Mm -hmm. I just looked at it. I was like, this is a business. They don't, they don't really care about what they're, what they're producing, you know, beyond that. At least that's how the feeling I got out of engineering. Literally my first day, we all sat like edge 100 and uh, the the lecturer came up and said, look to your left. Now look to your right. If uh, both those people are still in engineering, statistically you won't be, this is like drinking from a fire hose. You got to be ready for it. And I'm just sitting there like, (laughs) Holy shit. Yeah, no, I went to the car business after like one of the yeah. four months in my summer and I just kind of stuck with it. I was like, oh, I just get to talk to people. Don't have to. But like it's circumstantial, right? Like there was none of that passion that went behind. I mean, sure, I like cars. Sure, I like making money. Mm-hmm. But like I, I find that like very few people actually like get the ability to like do what they want. And I think if you ask a lot of people, it's always like, yeah, what am I going to check out dinosaurs for a bit? Yeah. You know, and uh, it, like it's 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 really cool because you start to look at just the science of you know uh paleontology and i grew up going to Drumheller a lot mm. like uh just going to the royal Terrell, uh checking all that out and i still go with my wife like if we're going to calgary i'm like 
Let's do a little pit stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like four-hour detour. It's no big deal. Yeah. Uh, but, like, just a just question for you, I guess, for on this topic. Like, what, do you have, like, a favorite dinosaur? Like, I'm sure there's a story oh, yeah, behind it, too. Ooh, that's tough. Like, for if you ask me favorite any animal, it's yeah. like, well, which type of animal? Yeah. And then, like, which subtype? <laughs> Subcategory. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I have favorites of all these subtypes. I just need to know which one. Uh, so I guess, like, if I had a favorite group of dinosaurs, my my research definitely geared me more towards the dromaeosaurids, the raptor okay. dinosaurs. Yeah. But before my master's really started, it was actually their, their sister group or the group closest to the raptors, which was the troodontids. And the reason I really like troodontids is because they're sort of the brainiest of the dinosaurs. Oh, okay. so they have the largest brain in relation to their body. They have these teeth. I think they have more teeth in their mouth than any other theropod dinosaur. And the teeth have these huge hooked serrations. And everyone's oh, like okay. talked about and debated, like, what is the function of these serrations? Like, what do they do? Yeah. Um, and I did a little bit of that in my undergrad, is looking into the function of those, those serrations and those teeth, which was really cool and rewarding. Um, and essentially like I, my hypothesis on it, I haven't published anything on it. I'm not finished any research with it is that they were really effective at cutting fibrous material. Um, okay. just cause I did a little test just kind of in the lab once where we took like a feather and we ran it across a raptor tooth and the raptor tooth, you almost had to like saw the feather before it cut. But then as soon as this feather got like stuck between two serrations of a troodontid tooth, it cut immediately, like instantaneously just like shredded it. Wow. So it was just like. Wow, okay, that works. I mean, yes, it's a fossil. It's not the actual tooth. Yeah. But at the same point, like, clearly the function of these serrations and the the space between works really effectively at yeah. fibrous material. So uh, some people propose that they're omnivorous because a lot of herbivorous dinosaurs have large serrations on their teeth, but they're usually, like, globular or triangular, and they don't really have cutting surfaces. Yeah. Whereas these ones are big, but they have cutting surfaces. So I kind of went the other way. I'm like, I think they're probably very carnivorous, but they're just using it for certain types of prey that has more fibrous material. So these are small mammals, um, babies, which don't have um, hardened bone yet. They're still very yeah, cartilaginous. So okay. it'd be more beneficial for it's it. It's so. really cool that you bring that up because I was watching this, uh, like th- th- there's, there's a lot of science now to say like humans should go on a plant-based diet because we're not technically omnivores. We're like foodivores, mm-hmm. right? And they, they, they just broke down the jaw structure. They said, look how the jaw moves. Like compare yeah. that to like an omnivore, like, you know, with huge teeth, they only move up and down. They have more acidic stomachs. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's just really cool hearing that you do the same thing with dinosaurs. You look at the tooth structure and the jaw structure. Like, okay, well, what what do you, what do you think these guys ate? You know, yeah. it's like if you look at a beer can opener and you're an alien. Like, it's like <laughs> yeah. you, you're gonna look at all these different things, and finally one day you'll be like, oh, this opens beer bottles. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's it's, it's, it's yeah, interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you would never know that unless you also no, yeah, found a beer yeah, bottle. Exactly. You would just right? be like, I, this is a weird thing that I found on the bottom of flip-flops. Oh, but exactly, there are flip-flops yeah. that have flip-flops. beer bottle openers. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought more... Uh, I, I'm just curious. I, I thought the it's more common to find the serrated teeth in aquatic mammals these days. Or, or am uh, I wrong there? No, you're not necessarily wrong. Like, crab eater seals have really big serrations, and they're kind of rounded, and they've got these sort of inter cuspule spaces which are actually very similar to the troodonta teeth that i was talking about before and i think what the purpose of them is is it's like a shearing surface so basically if you pin something between these cusps or these teeth they're forced into those interdental interdentical or intercuspule spaces and once they are there's this theory called the infinite pressure zone which essentially as you start to reduce or increase or decrease the space laterally the pressure increases exponentially up to infinity. Essentially, when you have uh, infinitely small space, you have infinite pressure yeah, that makes applying sense. to it. 
So that works on fibrous things or anything you're like forcing into those spaces. So that's the theory behind how those teeth probably work and what makes the most effective. And if you look at modern mammals, uh, carnivorous mammals, they have these carnassial teeth. Yeah. And they're kind of like two sides of that, that whole system in a sense, is that once they close those teeth, you have an intercuspial space that yeah. comes to a point uh, both laterally, so from both teeth side by side, and then also within the tooth, kind of like it pinches out to these parts. Oh, okay, yeah. So the way a mammal uses it is that they bite straight down and it shears past and all the meat's forced into those spaces. Whereas a dinosaur bites, it's biting and its teeth are going in in an arced fashion. And like so as it's coming it. Yeah, so as it's coming in in that arced fashion, the flesh is being forced into those same intercuspial spaces based on just that action. Yeah. So those denticles are working to essentially tear and cut the flesh as the tooth is going in. Okay, as opposed yeah. to with the movement. Yeah, instead okay. of mammals that are shearing it and trying to yeah. press it past, the tooth itself is just trying to land and make as deep of a sort of impact as it can. Okay. Hmm. And then with the jaw structure, as you mentioned, you know, form and function, dinosaurs can't chew and masticate like a mammal, so they probably behave more like a Komodo dragon in this way, is that once they bite, they just sort of rake their mouths past, and it yeah. basically tears out either a chunk or renders the flesh. Renders? Rends the flesh? Yeah. Just digitally renders that flesh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of like the idea of how their jaw action would work. So the denticles okay. matter in terms of that, that bite or the serrations. That's cool. That's yeah. It's, it's always interesting. I'm always curious too, because we had mentioned like, like you had, you mentioned earlier that the science is, isn't always perfect. And whenever we look to physiological things, the first thing I think of, so my, my foray into post-secondary was into psychology. And the first mm. thing you learn of is phrenology and how, hapless uh, uh, that was but that was the study of the shapes of people's heads and how it correlated in terms into their criminality Mm -hmm. and uh it was mostly just a way of making like black people had square foreheads and larger heads so they're more they have a higher propensity to criminality is what they were saying more more or less it was a good way of being racist and bigoted towards people from different areas of the world but that's what i'm always curious too is if there's Whenever we're talking about physiological now teeth, I can tell we we have compare direct comparisons to, but in terms of physiological like wing based stuff and leg based movements, yeah. there's got to be a, a an absolutely massive amount of presumptions that are built oh, yeah. into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so like the importance of a piece like like the that you guys have now, where like you said, a good portion of it is still intact. Mm-hmm. That can't be understated. Like that that's gonna actually it. I mean. To maybe not in this particular uh, this particular instance, but those big specimens have the potential to change history as we know it because mm-hmm. you can now concretely say here's how it's connected. Yeah. We can see it, and yeah. it's in its prone position, like you were saying as well, right? It's as, mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, on its side, so it's uh, well, not prone, sorry, but it, what, what was the? Oh uh, yeah, I guess it looks like a resting position. Oh, okay. But we we suspect it was actually stuck. So what we oh, call yeah, mired. like wedged so or something. It's probably trying to cross a river and then got stuck either in uh, organic material like logs or the sand itself. Okay. We have noticed a lot of, of coal and essentially where there was logs and sticks around its legs and stuff. So oh, it's yeah. possible that it kind of got stuck in and all that and then and couldn't giant move. beaver dam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's, there's those damn giant yeah. beavers. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, that's uh, that's so cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we're we're coming close to our time. Uh, do you have any kind of uh, finishing thoughts or anything? Just, uh, I guess, like when you think, uh, may, maybe even just touching on when you think the project itself will be done. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, with all the support we've got, like we definitely have options for next year. And I'm really confident that next year with just a couple weeks out in the field, we'll be able to collect Gary the Hadrosaur, as we've called him. Gary. Um, I like it. Gary the Hadrosaur. And uh, it should be pretty easy. Um, and again, like it's just a big thanks to that public interest and being yeah. able to receive such an overwhelming response from just reaching out, not knowing what to expect, you know, kind of being blind, well, as most students are. Yeah. Um, and then having that come back as you know, so positive, it was uh, really refreshing and exceptionally grateful for all that. So I'm excited that next year we can finally free Gary. We've been using a hashtag free Gary, which I found out is used for a lot of other stuff. Oh. So I should probably say free Gary the Hadrosaur now, just to <laughs> keep, it, okay. keep it safe from yeah. that. But um, yeah, so that's that's my plan. I think it will be done. Yeah, there's definitely a lot a lot of potential for like oh yeah gary the pedophile down well, in louisiana yeah. you're like oh no that's what i was worried about i was worried it was going to be some sketchy guy named gary that you know yeah really extreme people wanted to like get out of jail like no 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 yeah. not that not that like the yeah. free hat episode yeah. i was just gonna Park. say yeah. free hat yeah there's all these people how are we gonna make these hats yeah no I was, I was really worried about that luckily i didn't find anything like that it was mostly um i think a lot to do with i don't want to say because i didn't delve too deep into it but there was i think Gary in terms of a, a pride movement so oh, I mean, that's okay. okay i'm okay to be associated with a pride yeah movement. there you go I like yeah. that yeah. that's uh, a happier one it is yeah, yeah. but i'll always probably just probably do free gary and then free or gary the hadrosaur so that we yeah. know it's like it's a dinosaur gary there you go yeah. yeah but uh also for next field now that we found a tyrannosaur leg we have more work to keep doing so oh that's awesome never stops well and if you're nope. if you're part nope. of the public and you're interested in this kind of thing um what's your email that they can reach i know you've had an outpouring don't expect an immediate response as he goes personal but yeah uh, so yeah. uh i'll give my email but again yeah we have had a large response and i'm happy to keep you updated uh on the progress but uh we definitely have our stuff covered i think so my email is powers one at ualberta.ca perfect so p-o-w-e-r-s one at ualberta Awesome. So yeah. don't barrage them right now, but think about this time next year. If you're wondering what's yes. going on in Dino Land, uh, <laughs> you could potentially contribute towards excavating a Tyrannosaurus like, femur. Free grand kicking yeah, around. Maybe. maybe. You yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. Imagine what these guys can do with six. Well, yeah. Still Let's be honest. Yeah, come on. Yeah, we can stay on the I mean, he's still going to endeavor to be at 52 <laughs> or something like that. But, you know, it would be nice to be able to give you that confidence up front. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you know, it's, uh, it's great to have that support. Um, as far as financially, I think we're, we have a decent system, but it's usually just if something like this comes up if anything unexpected comes up we the are, one thing i know about financial unprepared. systems yeah. man it's a lot yeah. like engines it's like horsepower you can never have enough yeah just you know, it's just like yeah, yeah like uh, sounds well, like you guys are doing great out there and that makes me happy i will say one thing i'm interested for more public funding and there are government grants for this so it's not something that you know need uh anything immediately but we are looking into trying to encourage more involvement from indigenous perspectives as well sweet so we are looking at trying to fund a indigenous volunteer to come out with the field work for us um maybe it'll be starting next year but we want to kind of do that to help bridge some of the distance between you know the ways of learning and also learn something from it too maybe is yeah. get some ideas of how the other worldviews approach these sorts of there's also less green uh, red tape around that because yeah. indigenous indigenous peoples if they're on any of uh unceded territory will actually have subsurface rights okay because uh, those have never been negotiated out so there's there's actually some unique aspects oh, that yeah. you can get from uh from partnering with indigenous people where if there was red tra- red tape that was interfering with genuine scientific progress mm-hmm. you could potentially use community support that way to yeah. overcome it so there, yeah, it's one of the unique. Well, I know things. that's what my buddies are doing at Q Cigar Lounge right down the road because it's <laughs> on Enoch. 
You know, they oh, you can't smoke inside. It's like, sorry, native land. This is a cultural thing, right? <laughs> and it, yeah, it's a, it, it's funny. That's the way your culture. I never works, knew how they got around that. I was curious. Yeah, that's the loophole. That's, oh, that's fair enough. Exactly. Okay. Well, all, there was a few yeah. other too. I mean, I talked to Quentin there quite a bit, and he's a clever guy. Like he, yeah. uh, he definitely knows. You know the ins and outs, uh, the tobacco business for sure. But like, it, 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 like you said, I mean, there's a tremendous, uh, you know, uh, value to involving that community and stuff like that. Absolutely. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I, I see it more. My wife's a junior high teacher, and uh, I don't know. When I went to junior high, I had no idea we were on Treaty Six land. I had no idea yeah. any of that. Yeah. And now yeah. they're teaching all this to kids now, and I'm like, that's that's awesome. No, you it's know? a good, it's a good movement. A hundred percent. Yeah. When I went to the ledge, and there's all these statues of the former chiefs and. You know, you saw the treaties they signed with X's, and I'm like, were these guys literate? <laughs> I remember asking that in junior high. I don't think so, but this is our land now, and that that's the answer I got. And it's just like a total dichotomy now. Like, I was just in Victoria, went to the ledge there, and they had, like, as soon as you walked in, one of the, uh, uh, you know, indigenous fishing boats, and they were like, this is mm-hmm. part of our culture. Like, we need to atone for this, and it's just like a total 180 just yeah. from, you know, yeah. my childhood wasn't that long ago either. But it's mm-hmm. just a complete 180 that, you know, more educated people, more, uh, you know, I, I think socially responsible people uh, want to involve that community. Oh, for sure. I think, yep. yeah, there's there's a tremendous amount of things you could do there. It would be yeah. excellent. That's yeah. our hope. Um, I mean, a lot of it, unfortunately, was inspired. Like, you, you don't know. I grew up, you know, a white, white boy. I don't know. Oh, we all did. Yeah. yeah. So he's just, you don't, you don't get the exposure to it that no. maybe you need early on. Um, yeah. I was part of an education system that didn't really emphasize it. As you even said, no. too. like I didn't know about the treaty six or the treaties more in depth. Yeah. And I learned yeah. a lot about it through the university's indigenous Canada uh, course, just to get myself a little more educated. And it was a huge benefit. And for me, I definitely want to do what I can as a you know white person to make a better statement for people going forward and make a better. Absolutely. Vision. So I definitely want to see more involvement in a diverse community. And I think yeah. that's where we have a lot of amending to do is with our indigenous peoples in Canada. That's sort of our, you know, uh, issue we've largely tried to push aside as, mm-hmm. as a society. And I think like we need to embrace it and reconcile for the histories that has gone on and, you know, encourage a more um, cooperative system moving forward and a more inclusive in the sense of everyone's heard and has their you know, say in it. So getting yeah. more involvement in the paleo aspect, I think would just be beneficial, not to getting their inclusion, but for me to learn more and be more open and aware of kind of how I can participate. Yeah. So absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's uh, not just learning about dinosaurs at that point. It's a whole cultural thing, right? Exactly. That's, yeah. That's, that's, that's how the world moves forward. I think is just, here's the science we're going after now. What's your cultural perspective on this? What's yours? What's yours? Right. Yeah. The, the more, the more kind of viewpoints you get that way, obviously you're going to, Kind of like it's just thinking too. I mean, like you're brought up to think this way. You've got another guy from across the world that thinks completely different. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's why I like this podcast yeah. because, like, him and I, like, very different childhood, very different upbringing, very different political beliefs, but yeah. we all see the same problems. The solutions might be different, but the outcome is always the same. Yeah, yeah. like it's, it's it's the road to the solution that's always a little different. Yeah. But but yeah. at the end of the day, we both agree that we don't like how it is, and we <laughs> both agree that it could be better, whether or not we agree on what that better looks like. And yeah. That, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, well it's I, been it's been yeah, so sorry. awesome having you on here, man. Oh, and absolutely. Uh, yeah, it, if again, uh, powers one at ulberta.ca, <laughs> and I think that excuse me. 
again, try and hold off until next year, but it would be great to be a part of uh, the Tyrannosaurus leg dig next year. There we go. Yeah, which is going uh, to be great. Another learning opportunity for a ton of students and uh, even McGillians, right? If we've got to fly them out. Yeah, they're, they're mostly Dinosaur Park. We're, we're outside Dinosaur Park, but okay. I, mean, I would always accept the 20 McGillian manpower whenever, yeah. whenever I can. Sounds like it. There you go. Yeah. I might need it for the several thousand pounds <laughs> yeah. if we're getting big femurs and whatnot. All the boats back out, bring in the McGillians. Exactly. Awesome. Well, everybody, you have, hope you have a wonderful Friday and weekend here. Evan normally does a sign off, so I'll leave her to you here, no, buddy. I, I don't mind at all. Adam, <laughs> Adam should do a sign off. For all right, once. boys. Uh, Gooch <laughs> gang, thanks for tuning in for another episode. Happy Friday. Uh, we're going to do this again next week. We'll see you then. Take care. Thank you.